We we were so our basketball team was so awful. And I was the mm-hmm. worst player on it. I was a close had- second, Josie. Wait, wait. I didn't even play. And I'll tell you what. Aileen knows why I didn't play high school. No, because you basketball. were not talk me. But why didn't you play basketball? Don't you remember when I scored the wrong basket? Oh, that was oh. you? <laughs> <laughs> and I was so proud of myself. Like, I really was trying and I got it in. And then everybody's like, crickets. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Fiction Between Friends, a podcast dedicated to books and book lovers like us. I'm Josephine Angelini. I'm Lauren Sanchez. I'm Alyssa Hilfinger. And I'm Aileen Calderon. We're four childhood friends from the suburbs of Massachusetts. We've always loved to read, almost as much as we love to talk to each other. We started this podcast as a way to celebrate how a really good book can come into your life and change it. So if you're looking for fun and engaging conversations about books, stick around. This is Fiction Between Friends, and we're glad you've joined us. Welcome back. This is Episode 2, Season 2. I'm Josephine Angelini, and joining me are my dear friends, Aileen Calderon. Hello. Lauren Sanchez. Hi there. And Alyssa Hilfinger. Hi. As you may have noticed, we've changed the frequency of episodes from every week to every other week for the time being. Don't worry, we will get back to doing episodes every week at some point later this year. (laughs) (laughs) How's everyone doing? Good. (laughs) You know. 2022 is a piece of shit. Oh, no, we discussed this. I know we're going to discuss it again. It's going to be it's going to be a great year. Yeah, I have I have a feeling. Well, I'm, I am I'm, I'm starting off the year low so that I can raise the bar higher. Although my my bar is not as low as some others of you that I know, but I do have COVID right now, and so yeah. How's your How's your COVID, Alyssa? How is it today? Um, I'm I'm pretty doped up on various medications and <laughs> caffeine, so I think Absolutely. I'll be okay. <laughs> um, it's You're it's same. a nice. Uh, shift into a different set of symptoms. So instead of the nausea and um, incessant headache, um, it's now just the exhaustion. And then, oh my gosh, I'm just, I'm winded. It's If you remember when you were pregnant in like towards the yes. end and just all mm-hmm. that extra exertion and, you know, you'd go upstairs and be like, holy crap, it's like, I need to take a break for a second. Like, that's just how I feel. Dude, I hyperventilate when I farted. <laughs> <laughs> Pregnant. Yep. Alyssa's high. Lauren's making beef stroganoff. Aileen's wearing her high school varsity jacket. This is a very Everything is episode. awesome. Yep. <laughs> Everything is awesome. This is our second time recording this episode. Yes, it is. <laughs> Stephen King is strange, so this works well. That's right. This is our Stephen King episode. So Aileen suggested Stephen King novels for all of us to read this past week. Mm-hmm. and. Um, and no one, no most, one read the, the ones that I, I recommended. <laughs> oh, except for Josie. Jo- Josie played by the rules. Yeah, I did. I did. That, I, I tried to, to play part. by the rules, but you recommended a freaking huge book for me, and then I procrastinated my way out of being able to read it. <laughs> yeah, See, Alyssa didn't have me. it in her to read to read a forty pound book. No, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> a book by the pound. He's like. He's like the modern day Dickens. It's like he writes by the pound. Right? Like, yeah, instead of the word, it's by the pound. So, Alyssa, I can't. You're not a procrastinator. I mean, I don't. I am. I am I, such I a procrastinator that way. Mm-hmm. I always. You were always the one who was done with your homework first. You were always like, I'm ready for today. I was always the one that was like trying to finish my homework like right before school. I never had anything done. But you always seem like super prepared. Um, I Maybe I used to be. And now I have more of a. Yeah, fuck it. Attitude. <laughs> you finally got smart. Welcome to the dark side, Alyssa. I did. It's like <laughs> it's better over here. What's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'm as prepared as I can be. I'll walk into it. We'll see what happens. 
Yeah, let's wing it. <laughs> your standards were way too high. That's all you have to do is lower your standards to where everyone else's are, and then you're good. That's true. And it's much more fun. So, Aileen, which book did you read? So I read Billy Summers, which Billy is a Summers. Very, yes, a very recent Stephen King book. It's from August of last year. <laughs> Lauren is giggling. Um, and it's, I have to say, it's not, I love Stephen King. That's why we're doing this episode. It's not my favorite book of his. It's still engrossing. I still, you know, read all 500 pages of it very quickly, wanting to know Damn. what was going to happen next. But I think most people, when they think of Stephen King, if they haven't kept up with him, think horror. They think mm-hmm. Carrie, Cujo, Pet Cemetery, like scary books. And it, if that's not your thing, you probably, yep, you probably stay away from Stephen King. But his, he can span multiple genres. This book, Billy Summers, um, is more of like a crime thriller. And it's about a retired Marine sniper who has become a hitman and he has been hired for his last job. So this is the last kill he's ever going to do. He's done after this. He's getting paid out like $1.5 million and then he's done. Um, and he he has sort of decided, well, his whole thing is he only kills bad people. So he only kills someone who's done something horrible, very much like Dexter. Totally justified. To, mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think to sort of like win you over, be like, oh, I support this kill. Okay. So killing a bad guy. I'm in. Um, so he's killing a bad guy, some guy who's in jail for something horrible he did. Um, so he gets hired kind of by these mobsters. And part of the whole whole deal is he has to embed himself into this small town community, which is kind of a hallmark of Stephen King. It always takes place in some small town, kind of, you know, very average, working class, normal people. So he gets a house and he becomes friendly with the neighbors and the neighbor's kids and ingratiates himself with everyone because he has to sort he has to blend in for, you know, a few months until the time is right for the kill. So um it, you know, you, you you learn about all these other little lovely characters and Billy Summers, you know, has an alias and he's becoming friendly with them and you're getting caught up in this new world. And part of his cover is that he is in this small town because he is writing a book, which is another thing that Stephen King loves to do. A lot of his characters end up being writers. Like mm. he's he's the master of of taking his reality and then putting some kind of fantastical supernatural twist on that reality. It's one of the things I really like about him. It's not that he's creating this whole incredible fantasy world. He's taking something that you're very familiar with, and then he's putting some twist on it that you would never expect. Mm. Although that's what's a little different about this book. Like, it very much follows all of the tropes of of a crime novel. Like, it feels very familiar. Like, I'm used to his books kind of spinning off into something unexpected, and this one just, it it just, it felt so familiar. Um, So Billy Summers is undercover as someone who's writing writing a book, you know, he has office space and he's becoming part of the small community. Um, and then I'm reading it and we get to the part where he has to kill the guy. And I realized there's still like two or 300 pages left in the book. And I was like, wait, what's going on? I thought we were done. He did it. Job over. And, you know, and there's a twist where he's been set up. He realizes he's been set up. And then this young girl is suddenly kind of literally thrown into his lap who's troubled. She's just had a horrible experience. He saves her and it starts to become about their relationship and them, her helping him escape his situation, him helping her escape her situation. Um, and then he needs to get revenge and get his money because it turns out he's not going to get paid. So it becomes, you know, about it kind of takes, spins off into a, a different direction. And while all this is going on, he's also Billy Summers is writing his book. So some chapters are actually Billy writing as Billy telling his backstory about being in the Marines and how he ended up being 
uh, you know, a, a hired assassin. Um, so it, it, it's a good book. It doesn't have anything supernatural or horror related or fantastical or anything in it, which I think would appeal to a lot of people. I, I, I felt like I just felt, yeah, I just felt like it was so similar to other books that I'd read in that genre. But not is, I, Stephen King books. Yeah, which I think is also a testament to him that he can step out of his mm. comfort zone and what he's known for and embrace other genres. And I mean, this book has gotten amazing rave reviews. But that's the Stephen thing. King. He has, Stephen King has a built-in audience and it doesn't matter what genre he writes. And he's, I can't think of that many authors whose fan base follows them into other genres. It's, mm-hmm. it's very rare. Mm. You know, there's some that'll cross like certain lines, like if you're a fantasy writer and you do a YA fantasy and then you do an adult fantasy, readers will go with you. If you, but like he jumps genres so far. I mean, right. I mean, he did does short stories. And the 2004 Red Sox series that he and his other author friend covered, which he then spun into another book, um, A Face in the Crowd. That I really want to know the end of that I looked online and can't find the end of that book. Um, <laughs> I want to read the end. I don't want to read all of it. Well, I read does. the synopsis. The it sounds really fascinating, <laughs> and it's sort of a supernatural. And and I, what I think is interesting is you're right. Like Stephen King is known for his horror. At least that's how I knew of him. And it it I never would have read him or considered reading him until Aileen was like, no, he has other books that aren't going to be, you know, Pet cemetery or something really scary that I might enjoy. And after reading the book that I ended up reading, I might read the book that Aileen recommended. And then this other book, A Face in the Crowd, sounds really intriguing to me. Like, it's not it's not super creepy, but it might be kind of cool. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, because he started off, it was pure horror. And I don't even remember how I started reading his books because I don't like horror. I hate horror movies. I don't like being scared. I thought we decided it was Pet Cemetery. I yeah, know. I think Pet Cemetery. And I remember being terrified that my little dog named Pretzel was going to die and come back to life and <laughs> eat me or something. Because <laughs> yeah. Pretzel is obviously a ferocious beast. Oh, Pretzel uh, was so cute. <laughs> oh, my God. What a sweetheart that dog yeah, was. She was cute. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah. He, I don't know. I, I loved his books and kept reading them. And it, as his life changed, his books changed. Like he was in a horrific car accident or not a car accident. He was walking on the side of the road and got hit by a car. And that impacted the books that he was writing. I think they became more like psychological thrillers and about people being trapped in places, um, which actually made me wonder about you, Josie, yeah. and your writing and your books. And if the things that happen to you and the things that are going on in the world, do they impact what you write? Definitely. I've had things that have happened to me in my life that have completely affected my writing. Um, I wrote a whole book um, after I found out I had cancer and I was going through multiple painful surgeries. I wrote a book, a thriller, which I've never done before, called What She Found in the Woods. Which I found scary, by the way. (laughs) Did you read it, Alyssa? Of course I read it. Oh, you did? Yes. Yeah. No, it was. And it's really gory in the end. I know. (laughs) There's actually like, um, there's, there's a lot of blood in it. And like, I'm not one of those writers. I'm not one of those readers, but it was there because that was my experience at the time. I mean, not to get too graphic, but I had several really big, hard surgeries and there was a lot of pain in my life. And I put it in a book because that's, that's what I do. Like, that's what's safe for me. So it was, it was cathartic for you to write, to turn it into a book. Definitely. It's like Stephen King talks a lot about being honest as a writer. Like the book that I did 
of his was on writing. You suggested I do on writing, which is like his. I thought you needed some help. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I need it. Um, no, if it was like he talks a lot about if you're honest with yourself and honest with where you're at, then that's really all your audience needs. They don't need big words. They don't need, you know, for you to be this whiz bang writer. They just need to for you to come to the page as honestly as you can. And sometimes you're going through something that's so intense, you have to bring it with you into a book. It's not for your own catharsis. It's just that's your truth. That, that's my tea at the time. <laughs> so, so that book, did you intend to make it a thriller or you just started writing? And I know you never I had just idea. start writing, but... Um, one, I was super high on morphine. <laughs> um, I was on a morphine drip. And I, it was like three o'clock in the morning and the people in my head had all left the room at that time. <laughs> Something was going on. And, you know, I was in a cancer ward. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on. Like you can hear other people going through their, their pain. And um, I was sitting there and I just had this idea for a thriller. And um, I went, that's weird. And then I passed out. <laughs> and then I just couldn't get it out of my head. And when I can't get an idea out of my head, and I, I know that means that I have to write that book regardless of it regardless of whether or not it fits into my oeuvre or who I am as a writer. If that idea doesn't go away, if those characters won't go away, I, ha I it's just easier for me to write the book than to stay up every night, all night long, mm. thinking about them. And you ended up writing a children's book, too, because of that experience, right? Yeah. Talk to your daughter. Yeah, that that was more, it's like a really quick, um, Mommy's Going to the Hospital is the title of it. It's under my married name because I didn't want it to get confused with me as the writer. Mm. Um, I, so it's under Josie Leon. It's not even like, I don't push it. I just have it out on Amazon for as cheap as possible because when That's I was true. trying to explain, my daughter was two at the time and I couldn't, I'd never been separated from her, you know, and I couldn't explain to her that I was going to be gone and children aren't allowed in cancer wards because they're, they'll get everyone sick. Mm. Like it's not just for the kids, it's for the people who are there. She couldn't even come to visit me. So I, I needed something like some sort of step-by-step, -step, this is what's going to happen, that mommy's going to be in the hospital. The doctors are going to take good care of her. She's still thinking about you. And then she's going to come home and she's going to be in bed for a long time. And it's, so it's like step-by-step, -step, this is what's going to happen. I think that's so important though, because I mean, how many times have we all in our text thread been talking about parenting issues and, you know, we go to our in-house expert, Lauren, to say, yeah. like, what what books can we bring home to give our kids access to? Because they the kids will get out of it what makes sense to them. Right. right. It, you know, so even if you've written a book for a two year old, they they may see the pictures and be able to relate to it, or they may understand some right. of the words. Um, right. I mean, and even the, cause I have older kids and it's more about, you know, the, the personal changes and, you know, how do they wrestle with body image and um, peer right. pressure and things like that. But, but I do think that being able to have books accessible mm -hmm. to kids and to families to help bridge these experiences is really important. It really yeah. is because we, we all parent in a vacuum and you rely, which isn't natural. You know, right. you used to parent with a village, like you had a, a huge support group at all, every day, all day. And now we kind of do it on our own. So we rely on our friends, our, our family and books because there are people out there who know more than we do and who have great advice. I have a whole library of books on death now. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> very helpful. <laughs> but it is, it's comforting to know that what you're saying is something that other people have told their kids and 
it's it's okay. You know, you're communicating right. in a way that'll make them feel better. Right. So, so. Stephen King. So Stephen King. <laughs> oh, yeah, him. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Okay, but um, maybe this is a segue into my book, Elevation. I'm just yeah, wondering, like, was there some truth in Stephen King's life that made him think of this book? Because it's about a guy who basically loses all his weight. <laughs> it's but not his body mass. It's a cool idea. It's such I mean, a cool Lauren, idea. You, sh- you should describe it. Okay. So it's about this guy called named scott carey and he lives in castle rock which is um the town that stephen king bases a lot of his books in it's a fictional town in maine and um he's a single divorced man and he wakes up or he gradually notices that he's losing weight but he's not losing physical mass if you understand what i'm saying so he's losing weight on the scale but yes. his body's still So the he same. could stand on a scale with his clothes on or naked or with like pounds of pennies in his pockets or whatever. He still is losing weight. Like his, it doesn't fluctuate. Um, so he goes to see this retired doctor who's also his friend and tennis partner. And this guy's like, I don't know. This is really peculiar. And like I mentioned before, it's like so messed up. Like he needed to react more, but. That's just my personal opinion. Wow, he took but that there's in other stride. Things, there are other things going on in this book. There's a um, a lesbian couple who just moved into the neighborhood and opened a Mexican restaurant in the town that he has some, I don't know, some issues with. They they let their dog poop on his lawn, and one of the women in the couple, um, Deirdre, just is so cold toward him, and he just he really wants to break the ice and and show her that you know that he he's a kind man. Oh, there's a kitty. And uh, so he really tries to do this, but she just won't give. And he challenges her at the annual Thanksgiving 10K that, you know, if I win this race, because basically he's weightless and he can he knows he can win it. Right. He can just basically float through this race. And even though he yeah. appears to be overweight and she's like, yeah, you're not going to win this race. I'm the star runner here. It's not going to happen. You know, forget about it. And in the end, she falls in the race. There's this big lightning storm. It's very dramatic. He picks her up and she feels through him this weightlessness. So she's kind of like, what the fuck just happened? And at that moment, um, I should preface this by saying that the people in town are less than accepting of this um, gay couple. There's been a lot of acrimony and um, the, the women feel like they're going to have to close the restaurant because people just aren't open to them. They're different. It's caught on photo. Like they, there's a photographer who catches all this when he lifts her up. And put in the paper and feelings change in town. She accepts his invitation to dinner. They become really close friends. And he and the doctor confide in her and this the other spouse, um, Missy, that he has this ailment, this this peculiar ailment that can't be explained. And so the King talks about their developing friendship. They become really good friends. Scott Carey starts to think about what happens at day zero. Like, what happens the day that I weigh nothing? Does he, can he foresee that? Is he losing a certain amount of mass every day so he can project when that's going to be? Yes, exactly. Like, I'd never be able to do that math, but he can do it. And he was like, (laughs) so it was like one pound a day and then became more and eventually like just kind of, you know, and he was like basically walking on a ceiling. And uh, he purchases a wheelchair and he straps himself in and he has this whole thing planned. And he, and you know, he must be thinking about it like, well, coming to terms with it you know i mean basically if you know you're dying hopefully you go through that process mm. of coming to terms with this i have no idea i've never been through that so i can't say well, that, well that's interesting because that's that is what's happening he's dying but stephen king made it a very tangible thing that you can measure 
Yeah. Right. You know what I mean? Like he yes. actually knows the day that's, I wonder if that's why he did it that way. Hey, I never thought about that. that that's really interesting. The, the good inter- interesting thing though is, I think interesting is the word, but. Fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> how many yeah, fucks do we need? How many fucks do we need to get an explicit rating? I think we're there. Just one. One, one. I think we've had at least four so far. The floodgates are open, you guys. (laughs) The fucking interesting thing about this is that he becomes really close with Deirdre and he invites her into his, you know, into, into his real intimate circumstances. And he says that, you know, when this is, when this, when it's the day, I want you to be there and I don't want anybody else there. So she comes over, he tells her this is the day it's going to happen. She wheels him out. She unstraps him from the wheelchair. He has some sort of fireworks strapped to him, and he just floats up into the air, and he sets off these fireworks. I don't know how, like pull string or something. I don't know. And his friends just watch this, and he's weightless, and he's elevated. I mean, the title is Elevation, right? He's going up to heaven. So his body (laughs) is gone but his being and his soul is still present no he's i mean i guess i mean he's still human so if you get to a certain point in the atmosphere right i mean also the fireworks i know the fireworks so i don't i'm concerned about exactly how he dies yeah, Alyssa's doing the math and figuring out the physics of this whole thing. Oh, um, <laughs> i think he's just like deciding this is the day i'm gonna die but we don't know like the way that that ending sounds to me, it's like he didn't actually die of natural causes. It's like he was choosing a death, basically. Right. I mean, he could have stayed strapped in his wheelchair for longer, right? But what yeah. kind of life is that? Well, and right. he wanted to avoid the yeah. unknown because he didn't know what was going to happen when he. Right. Right. Zero. I mean, you can't right. have negative mass. Mass is a scalar measurement. Right. right. <laughs> so <laughs> when, I was, sorry. <laughs> when I was reading about this book on, I don't know if it was the official King Web. Stephen King website, but um, somebody called it extraordinarily eerily, eerie, mm. and I wouldn't say it is extraordinarily eerie. I thought that was just a little bit too much, but it was thought provoking. Um, I loved the characters, and as I've mentioned before, I, I as Josie says, I like continuity, so <laughs> it makes me want to read more books about Castle Rock. You know, about well, what is it about this town that what's he writes, it, why does he write about this town in particular? What is Stephen King thinking about? Mm, right. Did it did it fit your percep your perception of Stephen King? No. I mean, I didn't know what to expect, to be honest with you. Um, like I, I read The Stand many years ago and I loved it. Um, but that was like the only book I ever read by him. And I always my my coworkers love Stephen King. I mean, they'll read anything by him. Anything that comes out, they're like, oh, I'm on hold for Stephen King. It's coming out tomorrow. <laughs> and I, I'm like, I don't get it. But now I kind of understand that because he is such a craftsman and mm-hmm. he's just it, you yeah. can really trust his story. Like he's such yeah. a proven storyteller. No right. matter what story he's telling, you know it's going to be satisfying. Correct. You know it's 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 really remarkable because yeah. certain people only want a a type of story. Like, and I'll tell you what they want romance, they want yes. action, they want a courtroom drama. But no, if he no matter what he wants to write, it's like his voice that people are waiting to hear. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And um, I mean, we're talking about all his big tomes, his 40-pound books and stuff. But oh, this yeah. book was really, really short, and I so appreciated that. Like, I could read <laughs> that and get something out of it. It wasn't just so quick, like, I, but I was, you know, like I said, thought-provoking, and I still, it didn't matter. It was however many pages. I still got a lot out of it. And all the ca- the characters in his books are so relatable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not, like, 
rich millionaires. They're not or, fancy. They're not fancy. They're just yeah. everyday <laughs> ordinary people. So I think most of his readers can relate to that and yeah. kind of see themselves in some of the characters that yeah, he's building. I agree. And I don't think he overwrites the characters. I feel like they're very, they're, he just says just enough and you still get a good picture in your head, like, oh, who that person is, you know? Right. Well, he talks a lot in my the book that I did about too much description being bad because uh, he says that you can over-describe the setting, you can over-describe the person, what they look like, what they're wearing. And you want to give the reader a sense of where they are so that they know it. Like mm-hmm. they they feel like, but it still has to be theirs. Mm. And I get that. Like you don't want somebody telling you every single detail because if you give it to them in a flash, they just see that rumor, they see that character. And then you don't want to write, keep writing and contradict that flash. It's like you want that person to have that in their head for themselves. And I really liked how he describes that process don't go too far. Don't blow it. <laughs> People right. know what they want. And it uh, also it gets boring when you have too much description. Yes. Oh my yeah. gosh. I don't need to know about every like, single corner of the room. Like, do Just we give really me a general need sense? A chapter on ants in Walden and how they're <laughs> yeah, moving. Walden. Oh my God. Uh, it was. But I don't know if anybody reads Walden for pleasure. I don't think, I think we read it because we read Walden at all. <laughs> I'll be right back, you guys. I got to go check on dinner. Check that stroganoff. <laughs> But I think um, it, people might have read Walden if he didn't beat into the ground all of the ridiculous details of the ants and I what they're get doing. Past the beans. There were all those beans in the beginning. <laughs> well, the man was just locked in a cabin by himself, right? He probably had nothing else to do but to describe every single thing that he saw. Yeah. Thoreau went home to have dinner with his mom every weekend. It's not like he was deep in the woods. Oh, he was like well, 10 minutes from, from his mom. Like, seriously. The guy was not roughing it in the Adirondacks. No. He was on Walden Pond. We've all been there. Right, yeah. it's, like, <laughs> it's like right up the street, y'all. I know. <laughs> Super easy. <laughs> He's like, ooh, here I am in the woods living wild. It's not wild. (laughs) No, but you wrote like it was, and it was boring. I think it's an example (laughs) of how restrained description, according to Stephen King, is a good thing. But it's not like he doesn't run out of things to to write about. Alyssa, the book that you chose, not the one Aileen told you to write, read because the, the one shows was still here oh, yes. yeah. so so the like 40 pound book that i recommended for you was eleven twenty two sixty three, which i thought you would like because it is not horror it's about time travel it's about a man who figures out how to travel back in time and decides he's going to stop the kennedy assassination um which you should still read it it's a great book it's one of my favorites of his and i think i i will probably read it um I, when you have 20 <laughs> right. hours to spare. <laughs> <laughs> I checked it out of the library and it had two renewals and I went through and it was renewed first and I still hadn't picked it up. And then I opened it and I read the first three pages and I thought... Did you have to lift weights before you could actually pick it up? I did, yeah. <laughs> A little pre-Stephen yeah. King workout. I had to put on my weight belt so that I made sure my back was supported <laughs> yeah, before yeah. I lifted it. Lift with your knees. <laughs> and then... We ended up going to have dinner with friends of ours, and I told them that I was going to be reading the Stephen King book, and I had never read Stephen King, and I wasn't into horror. And our friend Eric said, oh, I also don't enjoy horror, but I just read The Institute from Stephen King, and it's great. Let me give it to you. You can borrow it. 550 pages, as opposed to the 800 that (laughs) yours was recommended, uh, the recommended book you had for me was. So now I had these two big-ass Stephen King books sitting at home on my dresser staring at me. And I 
I did what I typically do. Like I, I read the first couple of pages of each one. I read the last chapter ish of each one. <laughs> you make my skin crawl. Oh my you God. Say that, Alyssa. It's horrible. It'll always be funny. <laughs> and I definitely would have preferred to have read your book because the book that I read is about <laughs> children. And I, I have a really hard time with harm coming to children. Same. Oh, Ever since yeah. becoming a mom, yes. I can't. Yeah, I can't deal it's, with it. Uh, exactly. I'm. I'm too. Like the Walking that, Dead. You could, I was pregnant, and we were oh, watching that it. series, oh, no. and I was like, I can't watch this <laughs> anymore because there's a baby in it, and I was like, I'm not going to watch a zombie eat a baby. Oh. I'm done with the series. <laughs> Your DNA gets reshuffled it once does. you become a mom. It does. Weird things affect can't you. Can't see kids suffer. Anyway, keep it, Alyssa. Sorry. <laughs> Tangent. So I ended up procrastinating my way into having to read the Institute because the renewals for the library for Aileen's book ran out. So I was like, all right, fine, I'll return it. <laughs> the library made you do it. <laughs> Those evil librarians, right. Lauren. This book is described as a supernatural, I guess it's supernatural horror, but it's it's not horror in that there's scary creatures or monsters or things. It's horror in that it's something that could actually happen because people are perpetrating crimes against other people and they're finding ways to justify it. And so I'd say the main theme of this book is it's okay to hurt a few for the betterment of others, like to save a, a greater number. And so the premise is that there are people in the world who have telekinetic or telepathic powers and they are identified when they're young and they are brought to the institute and the the institute children range in age from 6 up to maybe 6 is too young 10 was the youngest that i read about but i think they they might have said like a few younger ones could have come through the system yeah. in the years that it had been operating so 10 year old was avery he was the youngest in this book up through about 16 and these kids have these powers and they're kidnapped from their homes and their parents are murdered. And it's all framed to look, I don't know, like an accident or something. And what's interesting is Stephen King starts the book after he does a couple of introductions about um, Samson and the Philistines and pulling down the temple so that the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. So your first introduction to this book is, oh, shit, the building's going to fall and everyone inside is going to die. Then you turn the page and it's just a, a single page with the words, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Roughly 80,000 children are reported missing each year in the United States. Most are found, thousands are not. So you have this context for, okay, maybe some of these kids are actually taken by the government for these underground research operations. And the idea is that there are institutions all over the world run by the government, various governments that are all in cahoots, and the kids are brought into the front half where they're processed and experimented on to try to more fully develop their powers. And it's really gross because mm -hmm. some of the testing that, that's going on is designed to enhance their telekinesis or telepathic powers. But then there's sort of a side gig of 
tests just so that they could see what would happen. And if a couple kids die in the process, well, it's all for the greater good of knowing what is going on with these kids, which is just gross. And then once the kids have maximized their supernatural abilities, they're brought to the back half. And in the back half, that's where all the work is done, where they're brainwashed into identifying their target. So their target would be some some figure in the world who, all right, side note, there are also precogs. So people who have precognition who are able to say, oh, Hitler in X number of years is going to try to create the Holocaust. We should assassinate Hitler. Or you know, other people that we don't know about because they were taken out before they could cause the harm that they intended to harm. So the idea is that there are these people identified in the world who are going to do great harm, and the kids are brainwashed into targeting those people. And the kids, you know, it takes like five or 10 of the kids to literally pool their powers together to cause a telekinetic or telepathic event that results in the death of one of these targets. But in the process, it destroys the kids' brains. They end up dying and, you know, never to be seen from again. And these kids are considered resources. And they're the people in charge are like, well, it's okay that the kids died because they did such a greater good for the world. So the story there's there's really two characters. Tim Jameson is a cop, former cop. Um, and that's how the book opens. And the first 40 pages, I'm reading along about this Tim Jameson, and he's kind of awesome. And it's a real casual story. And I'm like, oh, this isn't scary. It's kind of interesting. He's going from Florida, hitchhiking his way to North Carolina. You meet these characters. And he ends up getting a job as a night knocker in a North Carolina town. And you meet Wendy, who becomes his love interest, and she's a deputy, but you know she's better served at being dispatched because she really doesn't like the confrontation with the people in the town. And you meet the little town characters. And I just kept waiting for the scary stuff. I was going to say, though, Alyssa, like, how does it, like, what happens? So, Something's got to happen. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So Lauren's got the knitting needles out. <laughs> she wants to know the ending. <laughs> I've got to focus. It's my, it's my fidget spinner. Okay, here. so Lauren, while you knit, I'll tell you a story. So the first section <laughs> is about this Tim Jameson, and everything's cool, and I'm loving the book, and it's easy to read, and the language is descriptive, but not overly so. And the words are occasionally he'll use a word that, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm not sure that I know that word. But for the most part, it's all accessible. And then I get to part two and you meet Luke Ellis. And the most amazing thing about Luke Ellis is that he is freaking brilliant. And that's what time is spent developing. He goes to this school for gifted kids, but he's not on any type of spectrum. He really is just a normal kid, plays sports, is super nice. Everybody likes him. He's funny, but he's 12. And his parents get called in for a parent-teacher conference, and the school is like, yeah, we've taught him everything we can teach him. He's ready for college. And in fact, we've helped him apply. And next year, he wants to go to MIT and Emerson at the same time <laughs> so that he can be some type of engineer major at MIT and some type of liberal arts major at Emerson. And he'll probably do it on 
you know, an expedited schedule and graduate both in a year and a half, like something crazy. What a nerd. Total nerd. (laughs) Um, And so you see the family go out to dinner at a pizza place and they're talking about school and, you know, the mom and dad are delightful and they really clearly love their son and the son really clearly loves the family, well-adjusted. And they start making these little references to the telekinetic powers that he has. And it's not anything that Luke has control over. It's just that when he's full of emotion, the dishes will rattle. His parents <laughs> asked him how he felt about, you know, well, can you really handle MIT and Emerson at the same time? And, and he got really excited and the pizza pan flew off the table onto the floor and made a clatter. And, you know, they were like, oh, okay. And they just bent down and picked <laughs> it up. And like the most remarkable thing about Luke is his intelligence, except for the fact that he's also telekinetic. Oh, yeah, that. Oh, yeah, that. So you learn about this great family. And at that point, I'm like, oh, something's bad's going to happen. And sure enough, <laughs> that night, the, the operation in charge of harvesting the kids shows up at Luke's house in the middle of the night, murder his parents, kidnap Luke, um, chloroform him <laughs> to get him in the van, get him into this backwoods in Maine, right? So this is now back in a small town in Maine. And in the Institute, they have recreated his bedroom exactly to his, with the exception of no windows. Same posters are on the wall, same toys are on his dresser, same trophies, uh, same clothes. Uh, Everything is his room. So when he wakes up, he's really disoriented, but he knows something's not right. So he ends up spending three or four weeks in the front half and he meets. Other people, Kalisha, Nick, George, Iris, and then eventually Avery shows up and they all have varying powers of either being telepathic or telekinetic. And what ultimately ends up happening is Luke orchestrates an escape. And when he escapes, that's how he ends up joining forces with Tim Jameson and you get the kid and the cop overlapping their stories. And then ultimately... During the escape, but then, you know, like big reveal of taking down the Institute and trying to destroy the the whole network, um, it requires all of the kids in the Institute. So Avery is the 10-year-old and he's the most powerful of them. He is able to use his telepathic powers to not only communicate with everyone inside of the Institute in Maine, but to also reach out to other institutes around the world to be able to tell yeah. all those kids, hey, enough is enough. Let's let's bring this down. And so there's only four kids that escape, Kalisha, Nick, Avery, and Iris. Um, are there like 500 characters in this book? There are quite a few. You're doing a good job of remembering them. Yeah, you're having no problem keeping them clear, which is such a great sign of how like just the level of writing here just he gives enough all of the detail characters are so clear. and there yeah you see their personalities and then that's what makes it so sad when what happens is the f- four of them escape but avery and then a bunch of the other kids are still inside and they're literally holding hands in order to join their their powers and they cause the building to levitate and then crumble down. So just like Samson and the Philistines, Avery raises the building and then they all have it tumble down and they not only kill 
everyone inside the building, and that's many more than just the few that they would have killed, you know, had their powers been used to, you know, assassinate these individual characters. Um, so I tried to give you this really nice book about time I travel <laughs> and saving the historic figure, and you went for the scientific experiments. I know. It was very was disturbing. Totally and it was my own procrastination that, that got in my way. It was very good, though. Have you ever heard of robbing Peter to pay Paul? So you didn't read the 800-page book. You read the 600-page book. <laughs> I know. Wait, but did you you still enjoyed it, even though it sounds a little traumatizing? I did. And I think that my takeaway from this is that I like the way Stephen King writes. And I would be interested in reading other stories that he has because I enjoy the way he presents his characters and his setting. He's very clever. There was nothing really gory about the tests that the kids were undergoing. You were never given so much information that you could really picture it in your head in a, in a way that you were like, oh, no, I, I, I have to put this down and walk away. He's not being exploited right. with it. Right. He's not like. Yeah, it wasn't over the top gory. It's a hard line to walk, like to make people sympathize and make people feel that outrage. You know, like when you feel that anger that a character you love is being hurt. Without going overboard on like the violence mm -hmm. porn, because that's it's really hard to do that. How do you make it so it's visceral for the reader, but at the same time you're not you're not you're not exploiting your own characters for this cheap thrill type of thing. Right, it takes a lot of sensitivity. And there's something about his books, like they there are so many TV shows and movies that have been made uh -huh. out of his books. It's because so his since his fan base will follow him anywhere, like they'll read whatever he wants, they'll they'll probably watch whatever TV show or movie is made out of it. And being able to take your readers, you know, into a, another format is actually pretty difficult. I was just thinking about this. Billie Eilish, mm -hmm. she wrote a book. I mean, she's got like a billion followers. She's a, a huge star, but not that many people bought her book because it's hard to get your fan base to follow you into another area. Yeah. I mean, Stephen King's just such a solid storyteller that, I mean, his work is very easy to adapt he's very visual and he's very much like he just writes good stories you want to you want to see him like i think um, a, i think a pro, uh, probably a lot of people don't realize that stand by me was based on one of his mm -hmm. his books yeah, i had no idea just, right because yeah. it doesn't seem like a it would be a stephen king story right? it's so well written and, and the, I the body love that i actually I haven't read that, that i need to and the green mile the Green Mile, really? That's right. I forgot about that. I forgot yeah. about that one too. Yeah, oh it, that was God. that was like a, a like a series of short books or something. We actually have a it couple was? of them. Yeah, it seems like it because there are so many storylines and like he I, he mentions it in um on writing. He talks about just like the characters and such and how he made JC like Jesus Christ. Like he made um the initials for. The guy, what was his name? John Coffey has oh. the same initials as Jesus Christ. And he he's just talking about thematic elements that you could pull in. He's like, other people might not even notice your thematic elements when you're using them. He's like, but they're there for you. And mm -hmm. they're there to add like this continuity to the whole, mm -hmm. yes. the whole concept. So and, the Green Mile, um, it was one volume per month. There are six volumes total. Oh, wow. Um, that's wow. like one of those old... They used to do that in science fiction and fantasy. They used to release basically like a couple of chapters at a time. And then, you know, you'd put the book together with Pulp Fiction. They did that a lot. And, it, mm -hmm. and that's like sort of, that's what he grew up reading. He grew up, what I learned about, what I learned about you Stephen King from on writing. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to me now. That's my transition. No, but he, you know, his, 
the on writing is basically his writing. It's like how he got into writing. So what I noticed about this was that it's not a manual for writers. It's basically, he can't even tell people how to write without telling a story. I mean, that's how much of a storyteller he is. So he's telling the story of how he became a writer and what he went through in his life. And he's unfailingly honest. Like he starts from when he's a little kid and he doesn't pull any punches. He grew up poor, single mom. You know, he and his brother basically just used to go and play in this empty lot, which turned into uh, the setting for all of these books that he wrote. Like it's like this empty forest lot with like a creek running through it is his visualization for all of these multiple settings that he's used in multiple books. And he talks a lot about himself and his family and his drug addiction mm-hmm. and even the car accident, not the car accident, but being hit by a truck. Mm-hmm. He, that happened to him while he was writing on writing. When he was about two thirds of the way through writing this book, it was when he almost died. And then he came back to it. And there's like an epilogue where he goes through the whole accident and what he went through and how writing sort of, I I don't want to say he never says writing saved my life, but for him, writing and life are so intertwined. And Mm -hmm. it's that like one doesn't come without the other. He's been doing it for since he was like six or seven years old. And he really humanizes the process. He's probably the most popular writer ever. I guess I can say that. I'm uh, hell. I'm just gonna say it. He's <laughs> it's the most popular writer. I, agree with you. I hope we help him out in his career and get him a few more readers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, really, yeah. It's really got to put nice this guy's name out there. People knew who he was. Yeah, I know. He deserves it. I mean, he really does. The guy's not only written a ton of books; he's written a ton of great quality books. But he's also on writing for me was just. I felt it would just be wonderful for young writers, people who are just coming to it, to look at it and be like. He had, when he was a kid, he was trying to get published in all of these sci-fi magazines and fantasy magazines that he loved to read. And he got turned down over and over because he was like six and seven and eight, you know what I mean? He was a kid and he's sending in these stories and he's trying. And he kept his rejection letters on a spike hanging right over his bed. And when that spike filled up with no's, he made another spike and he kept putting them on. People said no to Stephen King. Like even Stephen King went through a phase where his writing was not good enough to get published. Granted, it was when he was a child, but it's like it's still probably better than some writers. It's, it, no, and he says you write. He admits, like even I've written bad stuff. You know, it's like everybody misses sometimes, and I think that that's just so encouraging for him to share that with a young writer because he his approach to all of this is that you can't make a bad writer a good writer. I don't think you can make a good writer a great writer. Like you'll, you know, I'll never be Toni Morrison. I'll never be as good as she is, period. I'm fine with that. But if you can write, you can get good and you can get better and you can get really good. You Maybe you'll never be one of the greats, like you'll never be a Shakespeare or, you know, Cormac McCarthy or something like that. But you can get really good if you keep working on it. And if you keep reading, that's another thing that he says. He reads like 70 books a year, which is insane. Um, he must spend a lot insane, of time right? alone. Right. He does. He, Up in Maine. And that's another thing. What a solitary life. He says, but it is and it isn't because he has his family close to him. So every day he goes to write and that's, it's his job. Like he goes to his office, he shuts the door and he sits down from nine to 12. And in that time, he writes 2000 words is what he says, which is insane. Guys, like I write 2000 words when I'm like killing it at the end of a book. And I like, how many, you know, how many words do you usually write? I aim for like a thousand a day, like somewhere around there. Like today, this morning I got 
like 680 or something like that. And that's fine because I'm just starting off a book and it's always slower. And I pick up my writing pace as the book goes on because it's just coming out of me. I write every day too. And I think this is great advice. Shut the door, sit down and write. Don't wait for the muse to come to you. You do your job and the the writing will come. And he has all of these sections, just like you were saying, Alyssa, that he sort of his outline is in his actual finished product. Mm. So he has a section that says like prologue and then CV. And then he has chapters within CV, which is like his background of writing. And then he's got the toolbox section and all these. So he breaks up his books into what I would do in an outline before. Right. Does he have a table of contents? In that one, does he yeah. have a table of contents? Yeah. Because he does not have a table of contents in my book. And that drove me nuts because then... I had to start at the beginning and just keep reading (laughs) forward. You're like, dang it. I don't know where I am in this book. Right. But he says that he's not a plotter. Like he's, he talks a lot about uh, plotters and pantser. He's a pantser. He just sits down and he writes. He is. I, you know, and he says that he doesn't trust plotters. And I get what he's saying. But I think that that's just because he's so good. Like he can intuit story. And others of us need to sit down and give ourselves the skeleton before we can go in and flesh it out. And he just knows what the skeleton should be without even having to sit down and think about it. And I just, you know, that's just the way his brain works. But I see it in his writing. I see that structure in his writing, even though he says he's not, he doesn't outline, his outline's right there on the page. Like I can see it. So it's, I guess he, it's just like yeah, a different he, way for your brain he to He must work. have to do it to some extent because his He's stories have so many yeah. subplots right. and so many characters. There, you have to like outline that somehow to keep track his of it. His brain capacity Maybe he keeps huge. it all in his head. Yeah. He's just got to keep it. I know that he can see it and he kind of keeps it all in his head. And maybe he just has this internal map that tells him now's, the, now's when I need a turning point. And that's the scene that I'm going to write today. Also, he writes as quickly as he can because the story kind of like spills out of him. And then... He goes back and puts more layers on it in his rewrites. Like I, my rewrites are more like cleaning things up, taking things out. Actually, I rarely rearrange and I rarely add an entire new storyline to my books when I'm doing my second draft. When is your second draft? Before it goes to your editor, or based on their notes? I usually what I'll do is I'll write and then I'll give it to my beta readers, which are the people that I trust who know writing, who know me. I'll listen to what they say. I'll do a round of notes on it to clean it up just to make sure that the, that the book makes sense. I don't really consider that my first, second draft. It's after I give it to my editor. So one of the ways that he works, he writes, he lets it sit for six weeks in a drawer. He doesn't touch it. He goes, it works on something else. And then he comes back to it and does a full rewrite before he gives it to anyone hmm. else, he says. So for him, that first draft is like, it's his A storyline. And then he comes back and he said that the, his second pass is for thematic elements. It's tie, It's like the B storyline. It's like all of the the second, like when you think of the major plot, the B storyline is the smaller plot that ties into like larger life lessons, like thematic stuff. He doesn't need to sit down and say, this is my act one, this is my act two, this is where my turning point needs to be. He just knows it and he just jumps in and does it. I could not do that. I need to know where I'm going before I sit down and do it. Well, it seems like um, a lot of his work with stories within stories it, mm. I kind of envision it as if if each story is like a strand, he very much is creating a, a pretty complicated braid, you know, like yeah. overlapping and network intertwine and all of that he has in his head. Is It's not linear. 
It, at least it doesn't right. seem to be linear. Right. It makes sense to him, yeah. I'm sure. This book is not a manual. On writing is not a manual for a new writer to come into it. He's got very great, he's got great advice. Like every time you see an L-Y word, every time you see an adverb, get rid of it. <laughs> adverbs <laughs> are evil. <laughs> adverbs are evil. You're telling your readers how to feel rather than making them feel it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's totally right. Everybody, he always says, listen to your editor. He says it like three times over and over again. Listen to the people that you trust. Do their notes. Like just obviously you're not getting your point across the first time. If they say this isn't working, even if it kills you, do the Mm. note. And I Mm. totally agree with him. And then he says, everything is up for grabs. Like everything that people tell you is a rule. He's like, it's if it doesn't work for that book, it doesn't work. And the number one thing that this book is, I think is it's food for writers. It's not going to teach you how to be a better writer. It's so generous. It really is generous of him to be so open about his life and his struggle and what writing has meant to him to be an inspiration to other writers mm. so that they can have the courage to go and do it. What a great guy he's got to be. I mean, seriously, yeah. he's just, it makes you feel like, damn, I could do that. Like I could write a book, you know? And he says, basically, it's not like anyone can cook or anyone can write. He's just saying, look, you got to, you got to work hard for it. And this is the work that you're going to have to do. And this is what it's going to, this is what it took me. This is how long it took me. This is how many people supporting me it took. Like, you know, his wife is just his guiding light and his backbone. Like his wife has led him through so much life shit and through writing shit. It's just so cool of him to write yeah. that. <laughs> well, and it seems and to give it to other writers. Well, that you know? And, you know, it's like a little window into who he is. And if he has such a yeah. following with people who want to read his books, it's I mean, it's the perfect indulgence, I guess, for his fans to be like, oh, I can get to know him a little bit better. And you really do come away from it feeling like you know him. His number one thing is be honest. You know, the first words that go through your head. Don't go to the thesaurus and look up a word that you'd never use. It's going to end up sounding phony. Improve your your vocabulary by reading more. And Mm -hmm. then when that word, when that big word comes to you, then use it. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. like, don't be phony is basically the the root of all of his writing. Be as honest as you can. Which really comes across and is why he's probably so popular. But also just revealing the fact that writing is hard work because Mm -hmm. I think it's really easy to think that it's just magic. That yep. just some people are born to be are amazing writers from day one and they go off and they can just magically write books. I mean, hearing you talk about this, I'm like, oh, my God, I don't think I can ever write a book. It sounds so hard. It's not. It's Writing the book is is it's just work. It's just work. Mm-hmm. And there, yeah. there are ways to get that work done. Having the ideas, he does say right off the bat that I don't know where ideas come from. It's put into your brain and they just fall in there. And he's absolutely right. He's like one minute, two things that aren't related at all will come together in your head and it makes a story for you. And he's and I totally get what he's saying. It was the perfect way to describe mm. it. It's mm-hmm. like you got this thing over here, you got that thing over there and then just one day it makes sense to put them together and you see this flash of the whole story and it's like, yep, that's or, exactly. Or even if is. you've ever done like a free writing assignment and you just sit and just write without thinking, suddenly things will come out of your head and you're like, I don't know where that I don't know where that came from. <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking that. It just came out. I was just writing without thinking and suddenly there's a there's a story the beginning of a story there. And then you have and, to finish it. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to finish it. And that's the work. But he says, no, nobody knows where their ideas come from. So stop asking me that. <laughs> and I totally, I totally got that. But he also has an amazing imagination. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, there's something very unique about him. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, I can't. That just having read this made me go for someone who's already written a bunch of books. Like I already, I already knew all of this stuff. Like I knew 
the basic guidelines of what he was talking about, like shut your door. It's a job. Get your job done. Meet your deadlines. You know, I, I get all that stuff. But it was so inspiring. I, th- I felt like for somebody who was struggling with the, am I a writer? Am I not a writer? Read the book and it will give you so much like, hey, I could do that, you know, because <laughs> he's just so like, it's not just that he's supportive. He just puts it out there like, I'm not some genius. I grew up in a small town. I was okay in school. Not great. You know, I had problems in my life. I was, he had problems with drugs and alcohol and, you know, he's sober now, but he went through, he was just like a, a dude. He's a dude that worked a lot of <laughs> blue collar jobs. He was a janitor. He was, his wife worked at Dunkin' Donuts. It's like, he should change he his biography in his book, Stephen King, a dude right. who writes. <laughs> He's just like a dude who writes. Regular dude who writes. <laughs> it brings it down to like ground level. And I felt like that was just so cool of him. Yeah. Anyway, I'm so glad I read it. Good. All right. Thank you for so, reading the book I suggested, Josie. You're welcome, Elise. <laughs> Thank you for being the one who followed the assignment. <laughs> it was You awesome. inspired the book that I read. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I couldn't get a copy. Laura's of, like, don't, don't be mad at don't me. Don't be mad at me. But I am reading it now. I'm reading it now. So. I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Final thoughts? So final thoughts on Stephen King. Do you want to go first, Aileen? Yes. Uh, I've always loved him. I actually, Billy Summers was one of his first, I haven't read him in a few years. Um, so it was nice to go back and read mm-hmm. him again. And I think I would recommend him to anyone who likes to read. And if you think of horror, when you think of Stephen King, just go through a list of his 64 books, read a <laughs> summary and check it out. Cause it's not all horror. They're all, a lot of them are really thought provoking. They really tie into what's happening in culture and society. And there's so many interesting characters. And I don't know, I think there's there's a reason why he's so popular. There's, yeah, there's something yeah. for everyone. And Lauren, I just want to, yeah, I want to thank Eileen for recommending um, that we do this because I'm kind of on a kick now. And it's been a while since I've been able to find um, an author to, to read, like an actual physical book. I listen to books a lot. Um, so this has been a game changer for me. Thanks. You're welcome. Alyssa, what are your final yeah, thoughts? Yeah, same. I would not have read Stephen King if Aileen hadn't have recommended it. And I will say that I recommend the Institute. It's not a horror, you know, conventional horror story. Um, so I think if anyone's looking to get into Stephen King and they want something interesting and compelling, thought-provoking, but not horror, traditional, scary, I would recommend it. Um, and this definitely will be a springboard for me into other books of his. Thanks, Aileen. You're welcome, Thanks, Aileen. <laughs> and it was just, for me, reading on writing was wonderful because I thought, you know, I, I, this is something that a, a young writer really should read. And I'm happy to recommend it to anyone who even thought maybe once they might want to write a book. Just mm-hmm. read Stephen King's on writing and it'll bring it down to ground level for you. So that was awesome. Thanks, nice. you guys. It was nice Thank doing you. this again. It was. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Yeah. I hope it recorded this time. I know. Oh, it, it looks totally like it's recording. Did. I'm looking at it. <laughs> and I think it was better the second time. I really do. You've been listening to Fiction Between Friends. To find the show notes for this episode or to subscribe and get new episodes delivered automatically, visit fictionbetweenfriends.com. Also, if you happen to have a moment and you've liked what you've heard, Please help support our podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. We would be immensely grateful. Thank you for listening. Listener.